As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Made by Podster. When billionaires like Barry and Honey Sherman are killed, Their sizable fortunes are naturally a likely motive, but it's not quite that simple in the criminal case I'll be reporting on today. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Tracing Darkness. My name is Lainey Hobbs, and today we will be tracing the steps of a quite spectacular murder case. The murder of the elderly Canadian couple from Toronto is one of the most noteworthy Canadian criminal cases in recent years. The case also contains a bit of everything, fortune, family intrigue, and foot-dragging. In 2017, the aging couple, Barry and Honey Sherman, had been married for 47 years. Barry, who was 75 years old, and Honey, who at 70, was a few years younger, both had European backgrounds. During World War II, Barry's parents fled to Canada to escape Jewish persecution in Europe. Honey was born in a concentration camp in Austria, where her parents had been prisoners. 
the family went to Canada immediately after liberation. Barry excelled in school, and from an early age, he aspired to work in the sciences. He also had a special quality, a photographic memory. Many of his friends described how he could memorize long and complex contractual documents after only a single glance. This was an advantage during his studies, and also perhaps in another interesting way, but we'll come back to that later. After graduating high school, Barry was accepted at the University of Toronto, where he studied engineering. His original plan was to go to work for NASA one day, but when he got a job one summer at his uncle's company, Empire Laboratories, he had second thoughts. Empire Laboratories produced cheaper, generic versions of brand-name pharmaceutical drugs. Many of you listening might have experienced going to the pharmacy with a prescription for a drug, and the pharmacist asked if they could instead provide you a cheaper version with the same active ingredient as the one prescribed by your doctor. During his time at Empire Laboratories, Barry grew interested in the pharmaceutical industry, even though he was initially just a driver for the company. Barry worked at Empire Laboratories for a few years before deciding to further his education in the U.S. He lived and studied for a number of years in Boston, where he eventually earned a Ph.D. in space technology. Despite his original plan to join NASA, Barry ended up forging his own path, buying his uncle's company. But that wasn't something that just happened overnight. The sale came about because Barry's uncle suddenly died at a relatively young age. But the people who administered his uncle's estate didn't want Barry to take over the company, so they didn't agree to the deal at first. A few years later, Barry tried to buy Empire Laboratories again, and then the deal went through. Barry took over the company and ran it with an old friend, Together, they expanded the business and eventually sold it and went their separate ways. With the money he made from the sale of Empire Laboratories, Barry founded Apotex, a new company with a similar business model. Apotex also manufactured pharmaceuticals. I'll come back to the uncle's company, Empire Laboratories, and Barry's business associates later in this episode. The murder of the couple, Barry and Honey Sherman, who met nearly 50 years earlier, has yet to be solved. But while the business history may seem like superfluous information at first, it is central to a number of theories about their deaths. Of course, Barry is not the only central character here. His wife, Honey, was also a victim. Barry and Honey Sherman met when they were 28 and 32 years old. The couple met through mutual friends, and no one could believe that a relationship between them could work. Barry was quiet, kept to himself, and was perhaps a little socially awkward. Honey, on the other hand, was very social, hated being alone, and got along well with everyone. Honey was a little hyperactive and bohemian in a way, while Barry was meticulous in everything he did. The couple got married in 1971, and soon after followed the births of their four children, Lauren, Alexandra, Kaylin, and Jonathan.
Sherman originally studied medicine at the University of Toronto, but after graduation, worked as a fifth grade teacher. But it wasn't long after the couple married that Honey stopped working because Barry's company made so much money that she didn't have to work. As is often typical for wealthy families in the US and Canada, she did not only end up a stay-at-home mom, but even spent her time in what may be called philanthropic venture, volunteering and doing charity work. This high level of charity involvement was an integral part of their wealth and status. Both Apotex and the Shermans personally donated record amounts to a variety of charities and worked on their own not-for-profit foundations. Often, these foundations serve as good PR for wealthy couples and big businesses. Large donations to charities mean networking opportunities at gala fundraising dinners, buildings or campuses being dedicated to your name, and builds the general image that a for-profit company has a heart. In addition, however, it also plays a financial role. Large donations have tax benefits, and in the case of the Shermans, their own foundations also served as a place to store capital under more generous tax rules. The fact that Barry and Honey Sherman stayed involved in charity work then is typical of the kind of high-status, business-savvy people that they were, but more on their charity involvement later. As the years passed, their second pharmaceutical company, Apotex, grew into a huge company. By 2017, when the event I'm recounting in this episode took place, Apotex was the largest pharmaceutical company in Canada. The company employed over 10,000 people and brought in huge sums of money for Barry. Early in his career, when asked what exactly his company did, he replied, I take other companies' drugs and make cheaper versions of them which is probably the easiest way to paint a picture of Apotex's business model. Apotex followed in the same industry as its predecessor, Empire Laboratories, and initially focused on antidepressants and HIV medications. But one key aspect of the way that Apotex did business made Barry notorious. In order to make cheaper versions of brand-name drugs, Apotex had to get past patent restrictions, so, Apotex sued the big drug companies to force their patents to expire, and usually succeeded. Barry was certainly not afraid of litigation, much to the frustration of the heads of several large pharmaceutical companies, and over the years, he angered several of them. By 2017, Barry and Honey were the 12th richest couple in Canada, and their fortune was estimated to be around $5 billion, though that amount was likely an underestimate. Although Barry and Honey were filthy rich, in many respects they lived fairly modest lives. Of the two, Honey was the most lavish spender, and at her urging, the couple built a lavish mansion in the 80s, where they lived until their deaths. The mansion was enormous, it had several bedrooms and bathrooms, indoor and outdoor swimming pools and hot tubs, a large kitchen and two large terraces, a large garage, cinema, tennis court, and a gym. The extravagant house, however, was the only outward sign of the couple's wealth. Barry, for example, always drove a car that was close to breaking down and wore clothes from the supermarket. For his 50th birthday, Honey gave Barry a sports car, and he responded to the gesture by asking her to return it to the shop. 
Although the couple lived modest lives in some respects, their money moved around in other ways. The couple traveled extensively and donated huge sums to charity. Over the years, they donated money to many different Jewish organizations. According to one source, more than $50 million in total. As mentioned earlier, Honey was involved in various charities and it occupied her in the same way that a regular job would have, even if she wasn't getting paid. Barry belonged to the Liberal Party of Canada and supported the party financially. Among other things, he donated large sums to the election campaign of the current Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. In addition, Abitax, Barry's company, sent over $40 million in various types of medicines to disaster areas around the world. Barry was also incredibly generous with his money in other ways. He gave and lent money away to his relatives and friends and didn't really care if it was repaid. Barry gifted his cousins $8 million. I'll come back to that too. And over the years, Barry invested in various businesses, but then got cheated, or the businesses went under and he lost his investment forever. Barry's acquaintances wondered how he could spread his money so haphazardly. But when you're sitting on a fortune of nearly five billion, a few million here and there probably doesn't mean much. According to many sources, Barry wasn't really interested in recovering his money, but he was happy to take money-related disputes to court. He had a thirst for justice and influence. Barry would exploit the power dynamics of loaning money. For example, if Barry lent a large sum to a friend, he might never ask for the loan to be repaid, but he might find himself asking for other favors and justifying it by recalling the money he had been so generous to lend. Barry's industry peers perceived him in a wide array of different ways. Some thought he was kind and fair, while others thought he was cold, calculating, and cruel to others. And if you're interested in learning more about Barry's business, there's a really good book written about this case called The Billionaire Murders by Kevin Donovan. It contains many pages of detailed information about Apotex and Barry's business practices. In December 2017, Barry and Honey were looking forward to new adventures. They had decided to sell their house. The couple was due to travel to Florida shortly before Christmas, a trip Honey was busy planning in the middle of putting their house on the market. The price of their mansion, by the way, was $6.9 million, and their plan was to build a new house on another lot they had purchased. This was Honey's idea, because Barry was happy as a clam living in the old house. However, the new home would be closer to the couple's family, which was the main reason Honey wanted to move. To prepare the house for sale, the couple sought to renovate their house as it was built in the 80s and it was a bit outdated. However, Barry and Honey never got to sign the transfer agreement. On December 13, 2017, Honey met with her husband and the architect who would design their new house at the Apotex offices. According to the architect, the meeting went well, and Barry and Honey were pretty much in agreement about the design of the new house. Honey and the architect left Apotex at the same time, while Barry stayed behind to work. On the way home, Honey stopped at a shopping mall, then drove home. During the journey, Honey spoke on the phone to a friend for about five minutes. 
The friend has since said that Honey sounded like herself on the phone and that everything seemed fine. The conversation with the friend was the last time anyone heard from Honey. At a quarter past eight that evening, Barry sent the last work email from his computer at the Apotec's office. At 8.30 p.m., according to office surveillance camera footage, he left the office but did not report to work the following day. According to everyone who knew Barry, he was a workaholic who found it hard to stop working, even on vacation. While this was certainly unusual behavior, he was the founder of Apotex, so no one monitored his presence at work. People in the company did notice his absence on December 14th, but without anyone being particularly concerned or surprised. It was only the following day that something was seriously wrong. On Friday, December 15th, Barry and Honey Sherman's first guest of the day was their own personal trainer, who came to the couple's home twice a week for training sessions. As the personal trainer was also a friend of the couple, he had his own key to the house, which he could use when he came to train. The trainer noticed that both the Thursday and Friday newspapers were still outside the front door of the house, which was odd because Barry used to start each day by reading the newspapers and having another cup of coffee. Yet two days worth of newspapers remained unread. While the personal trainer wondered why the newspapers were still outside the front door, Barry and Honey's cleaning assistant also arrived for their Friday duties. That Friday, she was going to help Honey prepare food for the Hanukkah dinner they were going to that weekend at their daughter's house. The cleaning assistant and the personal trainer entered the house through the side door. I don't know why, because they had obviously both been at the front door of the house before then, where they had discovered the newspapers. When they got inside, they discovered that the house alarm system was not on, which was odd, but not entirely unusual for Honey and Barry Sherman. The house was totally silent, so it seemed that no one was home. The personal trainer called both Honey and Barry, but neither answered. The cleaning assistant went to their bedroom, but Honey and Barry weren't there either. The bed was made and the room was completely clean. This was very unusual. Normally, Honey left the bed unmade on Fridays and put the laundry on the bed because she knew the cleaner would be coming. When it appeared that the couple might have gone on vacation to Florida earlier than they originally planned and had forgotten to inform him of their changed plans, the personal trainer went home. The cleaning assistant was now alone in the house and while she was doing her work, she suddenly heard a phone ringing somewhere. She found Honey's iPhone ringing on the floor of one of the house's bathrooms. In itself, it was odd that the phone was on the floor but even more so that it was in one of the bathrooms that Honey never used. There were several bathrooms in Barry and Honey Sherman's house, and Honey usually used the one closest to the master bedroom. After finding the phone, the cleaning lady continued her work in the house until shortly before 11, when a real estate agent arrived with two interested buyers. The buyers had flown all the way to Canada from China to see the house, so the realtor had no doubt about their sincere interest in the house. The realtor began his tour, showing the interested buyers the top floor of the house and continued the tour down floor by floor until they reached the basement, where there was a pool area. 
the real estate agent opened the basement door to the pool area when he noticed something strange at the edge of the pool. Two figures sitting very still and in very strange positions. The estate agent apologized for barging in and told the potential buyers waiting behind him that the pair appeared to be practicing yoga by the pool. He told the cleaner, who was still working in the house, what he had seen and asked her to go down to the basement to see what was going on. But the cleaner said she was scared and didn't dare go down there. During the estate agent's viewing, another person had arrived at the house, the gardener. She would come in the winter months to go around the house and attend to the house plants. The realtor and cleaning assistant explained to her what they had seen and asked her to go downstairs. The gardener said she was not afraid and could go down and see what was going on. When she returned a few minutes later, she looked very upset and told him that Barry and Honey Sherman had died and that someone should call 911. But no one did. For some reason, the estate agent made a number of other calls first. He called Honey's sister in Florida and told her that Honey and Barry had died. The sister asked the realtor to stop talking to her and to call the police instead. But then the realtor instead called the Sherman's four children. In the end, an hour and a half passed before they finally called 911 to report the discovery of the two bodies. Although this hasn't been mentioned anywhere, I assume the realtor must have been a family friend. After all, he had the numbers of Honey's sisters and Honey and Barry's children and felt it natural to call them to deliver the terrible news. It may be that he and the others in the house were in shock or otherwise so upset that they couldn't think straight, and that's why it took so long for them to call 911. When the authorities were finally notified, police and ambulance crews arrived on the scene within minutes. Unfortunately, there was nothing more they could do. Both Barry and Honey were dead, and judging by the state of their bodies, they had been lying dead in the house for at least 24 hours. Both Barry and Honey were in a seated position with their right leg crossed over their left leg. The reason they were standing upright and had not fallen over or into the pool beside them was that two men's leather belts were strapped around each of their necks and tied to the metal railing around the pool. The couple were wearing ordinary, everyday clothes and light outerwear. If I understand correctly, they were not wearing winter jackets, which is perhaps a little odd, as it was cold in Toronto at that time of year. Barry's face showed no signs of violence and his glasses sat straight and in place on his head. But on Honey's face, there were obvious bruises and small contusions. Soon after those present called the authorities, Barry and Honey's house was sealed off, attracting media attention. The couple can be said to have been public figures, so many were curious about what had happened in the wealthy and successful couple's house, and so the police turned up in droves. The police questioned the staff at the house and got their descriptions of what happened that morning. During the questioning, for example, 
They told the police about the alarm system that had not been activated and about the newspapers that had been left outside the door. The estate agent said he had seen a pair of men's gloves lying in the cellar in front of the cellar door, leading to the garage, and that there had been some papers about the property on the floor. Police also interviewed the couple's neighbors, but many of the families who lived on their street had fled Toronto's cold winter for warmer climates, so they weren't home at all. Those who lived in the house across from Barry and Honey were home, however, but they hadn't noticed anything unusual in the past few days. They said that they had a security camera in their yard, which also recorded some of the yard and the gate to Barry and Honey's house that might be useful for the police to see, and the officers promised to return later and look at the footage. It's perhaps a little odd that Barry and Honey themselves didn't have any security cameras installed in their house. You'd think that if you lived in a $6.9 million house like they did, you'd have security cameras set up around the property and the house, but no. The house's only surveillance camera was installed in the pool area in the basement, where the couple's bodies were found, but it had never been turned on. According to the couple's acquaintances, Honey and Barry were also a little sloppy in keeping the house's doors and windows locked, as it was difficult to keep track of them all. Many people have directly said that the couple were not particularly concerned about the safety or security of their property. Once the bodies had been removed from the house, the police held a short briefing for the media, who turned up in great numbers in front of their house. During the briefing, the police said that there were no signs of forced entry into the house and that they had no reason to suspect that anyone from the outside was involved. Police said they were not looking for any suspects, but that they considered the deaths suspicious. Although the police never said so directly to the media, they suspected that Barry had killed his wife and then died by suicide, or that there was a double suicide. For weeks, newspapers speculated on both theories, but police refused to confirm either. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The bodies were autopsied the following day, Saturday, December 16th. According to the doctor who performed the autopsy, Honey had been hit in the face at some point before or after her death, but he could not say exactly what she had been hit with, possibly with a hard or heavy object, 
or her face had been struck against something hard. The actual cause of death was not assault, though. Honey had been strangled to death, probably with the belt tightened around her neck. The doctor also noted that there was bruising around Honey's wrists, but it was unclear what Honey's hands were bound with. Honey's autopsy offered no major surprises, and the results were as the doctor and police had expected. Honey was relatively healthy for her age, although she had hip and shoulder problems and suffered from arthritis. There was no sign of alcohol or drugs in Honey's system, and according to people who knew her, she didn't drink much. Barry's autopsy made clear that he was not as healthy as Honey. Barry suffered from type 2 diabetes, which had taken its toll on his health for some time, and according to those closest to him, he had failed to change his diet for the better, despite much medical advice and injunction. Barry had also had prostate cancer some years earlier, but had recovered. Like Honey, Barry's cause of death was found to be asphyxiation, and the instrument used was the same leather belt that had been used on Honey. However, the police theory of suicide was overturned when the postmortem examiner discovered that there were also marks around Barry's wrists, but as no materials, strips, belts, or similar were found nearby, they must have been removed from both Barry and Honey's wrist and disposed of. On the basis of this discovery, the coroner concluded that Barry had not murdered his wife and then died by suicide, but that both had been victims of murder. Barry and Honey's children, however, were not happy with the police findings. They quickly assembled a team of lawyers and private investigators to further investigate the events and conclusively disprove the police's original theory of a murder-suicide. Immediately after the autopsies were published, the police also announced that the original theory of suicide and murder was probably not true, but they kept the suggestion of a murder secret for weeks, not even telling the couple's children. The children pointed out to police that the fact that there was no sign of forced entry into the house meant nothing to them. Many family members, friends, relatives, and employees had keys to the couple's home. Moreover, the children knew that their parents always opened the door, even if they were not expecting visitors or knew who had knocked. The children confirmed the accounts of other family members that the Shermans were not particularly concerned for their own safety. The police questioned the children about their parents' marriage, and they said that like any long marriage, their parents' marriage had its ups and downs. For example, Barry worked all the time and didn't enjoy the parties and get-togethers that Honey liked to organize. The children said their parents had two sides. Outwardly, they were a power couple in love, but in private, they lived very separate lives. For example, they each had their own bedroom for the past 10 years. According to the children, there had been many fights at home when they were young, but things had changed for the better after they had moved out. No evidence was found that either Barry or Honey had had extramarital affairs. Of course, the couple had no money problems, but when you are talking about such rich people, money and money-related motives were obviously scrutinized. I will come back to that later. It turned out that the children's dissatisfaction with the work of the police had some truth to it. Police action in the days after the murders was slow and many things were not investigated. At the same time as Barry and Honey's murders, a serial killer had been caught in Toronto 
which occupied a large number of police officers. So police officers who were not normally involved in such big murder cases and who had little experience of homicide investigation had taken on Honey and Barry's case. The family's neighbors, as mentioned, had indicated that they had a CCTV camera in their yard, which recorded the gate and driveway of the couple's house. The neighbors had seen the CCTV footage and noticed that a man they did not immediately recognize had been inside Barry and Honey's home at least three times on Thursday night, the day before the bodies were found. The neighbors had to contact the police several times just to get them to view the tape. They knew that the CCTV recordings would only be saved for one week, so the clock was ticking. In the end, the CCTV footage showed nothing of significance to the investigation, and the man who had visited the house on Thursday was later ruled out as a suspect. But the police couldn't know that at this stage in the investigation. There was also a delay in collecting DNA evidence. It took police eight months to collect fingerprints and DNA from the couple's house, since a lot of outsiders visited the house, it could be said that the police should perhaps have collected fingerprints from all the family's acquaintances and employees to compare them with the fingerprints found in the house. But the couple's personal trainer, for example, had said that he was never asked to provide fingerprints for comparison. Their son-in-law's father, who was often in the house to perform various operations, also said his fingerprints had never been obtained even though he knew the couple's house was probably chock full of his fingerprints. Some also find it strange that when the team hired by the children ordered a second autopsy, the investigators on the case refused to attend, even though they had been invited, nor did they want to access the written report of said second autopsy. Anyway, the results of the second autopsy were the same as those of the first, so I will not go into it in detail. In the course of the investigation, the children initiated a kind of investigation themselves, with the leadership of their lawyer. Barry and Honey's children offered a reward of $10 million to the person who could provide the decisive clue, and they set up a tip line which received hundreds of calls, but nothing conclusive. Barry and Honey's funeral was held a week after their bodies were found, the funeral was attended by a total of 6,000 people, including Toronto Mayor John Tory and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. In late January 2018, a month and a half after Barry and Honey Sherman's deaths, police announced to the public that the case was being investigated as two murders. Investigators said that they did not believe the killing was spontaneous, but that the killings were planned in advance and the victims were not chosen at random. It is now more than five years at the time of this recording since the murder of Barry and Honey Sherman took place, and over the years, the police have been very quiet about the investigation. This may be because there is nothing to report, or the police have been reluctant to publish the results of their investigation. All the documents relating to the investigation have also been classified, but a journalist who also wrote the book on the case that I mentioned earlier managed to get some of the documents declassified, in November 2020, the police announced to the public that they had a suspect in the case, and a few days later, they added that there were several suspects. A year later, police released a short video clip showing a man walking near the couple's house on the night they are believed to have been murdered. 
police asked the public if anyone could provide more information about the man's whereabouts or identity. According to police, none of the surveillance footage shows the man walking into Barry and Honey's yard or entering their house. However, video footage taken on Barry and Honey Sherman Street shows the man disappearing for a long time just outside the couple's house and then reappearing, which could suggest he was inside Honey and Barry's house. Police believe it is likely that Barry and Honey were killed late on Wednesday night, December 13th, two days before their bodies were found. It is possible that Honey, who was home before her husband, was killed before her husband got home from work. Or perhaps that Honey had been attacked and tied up before Barry got home and then killed later. Based on the property-related documents, as well as the pair of men's gloves found in the basement outside the door leading from the garage to the house, police believe Barry must have been assaulted when he entered the house from the garage. The papers may have been in Barry's hands and fallen to the floor during the time the assault took place. Police have not commented on why they believe the perpetrator physically assaulted Honey, but not Barry. The belts used to tie Barry and Honey to the pool railing belonged to Barry, meaning the perpetrator had not brought them to the house. Although that's all the information the police have come up with, there are still many more interesting angles, possible suspects, and other theories dealing with this case. One of the widely held theories about Barry and Honey's killer, or killers, has to do with the company Barry bought after his uncle passed away, Empire Laboratories. Barry's uncle had four sons, who are then Barry's cousins. They were still young children at the time of the sale, one of the reasons why those who executed Barry's uncle's estate did not want to sell the business was that they wanted it to be passed on to his children. But because they were children, of course, they couldn't immediately start running the business. Barry ended up signing a purchase agreement with a few conditions about the cousins. Each cousin got 5% of Empire Laboratories, so in total, 20% of the company belonged to someone other than Barry himself. The agreement was that when or if the company made a profit, 20% of that profit would go to Barry's cousins. However, this did not apply if Barry sold the business, and the contract did not, of course, automatically pass to the next buyer of the business. So when Barry sold Empire Laboratories, the cousins lost the business and the income stream it provided for them. They also received no money from the sale, so, in 2007, 10 years before Barry's death, his cousin sued him, claiming that Barry had cheated them in the sale of the business. They believed that Barry had sold his uncle's business and set up an exactly identical company, Apotex, with the intention of avoiding sharing the profits with his cousins. Barry knew that the pharmaceutical business was lucrative, and when he began to consider founding Apotex, he also knew that the patents on some known drugs were about to expire. Barry was known to be a tough and even ruthless businessman, and so it is plausible to speculate, as the cousins did, that he may have set up the new company to get his hands on all the profits. Inconsiderate behavior, perhaps, but by no means illegal. The children, or their lawyer, since they were still minors at the time, must have known the terms of the deal and that there was nothing illegal about it, 
So you could say it was their own fault that they agreed to the deal and didn't put any conditions on the sale of Empire Laboratories. In a 2007 civil lawsuit, the cousins claimed that they had lost hundreds of millions of dollars in total because of Barry's actions. One thing the cousins failed to mention in the civil suit, however, was that Barry had also given them tens of millions of dollars over the years. Some have speculated that Barry might have felt guilty and therefore compensated his cousins by being extremely generous to them. One of Barry's cousins had a very serious drug problem, and apparently he wasn't the only one in his sibling group like that. Barry may have thought that, without the takeovers, his cousins might have ended up working in their late father's company and might have ended up with better lives. The Empire Laboratory civil trial took a very long time to draw to a close, a total of 10 years to head to court, and was concluded only weeks before Barry and Honey died. In the judgment, the judge said the cousins claimed that Barry should pay them hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation for the business deal was wishful thinking, and so they lost the case. They were ordered to pay the legal costs, which were estimated at $300,000, but the costs were closer to $700,000, and perhaps that says something about Barry's character, that he demanded that his cousins pay the full amount, $700,000, and that he was prepared to start a new lawsuit to recover that amount, despite the fact that he could have flushed the $700,000 down the toilet without it making a dent in his wealth. So, the motive for recovering the money was not the money itself. Barry wanted justice and was prepared to fight for it. Barry probably also felt wrong that he had given his cousins so much money over the years and that they had chosen to sue him anyway. One of Barry's cousins, Carrie, has made a number of media appearances since Barry and Honey's deaths, partly of his own free will, he gave a television interview to the Canadian TV program The Fifth Estate, in which he said that Barry had asked him decades earlier if he could hire someone to kill Honey. When Carrie's allegations were investigated, however, they proved to be unfounded. Carrie has openly said that he hated Barry and that he felt he had blatantly deceived him and his brothers. Carrie has also admitted that for years he has had fantasies of taking revenge and murdering Barry, but he has denied knowing anything about Barry's murder. Barry and Honey's estate was divided equally among their four adult children. Barry's will stipulated that his estate would pass in full to Honey if he predeceased her. There is conflicting information about Honey's will. Apparently, she had one, but it could not be found anywhere. With an inheritance as large as Barry and Honey's at stake, it is an inevitable suspicion that the children may be involved in the murder of their parents, especially since, in the case of the Sherman family, it's become clear that they didn't always get along. The couple's two eldest children, Jonathan and Lauren, often disagreed with their mother. According to some people close to the family, it was a public secret that Honey and Jonathan hated each other, and Lauren had told her friends that her mother's behavior towards her had always been outrageous, and that Honey constantly made fun of her choice of clothes and her appearance. Barry got on better with their children, but this may have been because he was very generous with his money. Even though over the years, the parents' money had been divided quite unevenly between the four children. 
By the time the two eldest children, Jonathan and Lauren, had come of age and left home, their father had given them each $100 million, which he asked them to invest and spend wisely. When the two youngest children, Kaylin and Alexandra, moved out, they were given only $1 million each. While a million is obviously a lot of money, the difference from 100 million is considerable. Based on the information I have about Honey, she may have had a hand in this. Honey didn't like her children being handed large sums of money out of the blue. Honey feared that her children would be so spoiled that they would never learn to live a normal life. It is unclear what Honey and Barry's children did, but one of them, despite her considerable fortune, was a nurse working with the homeless. So they certainly weren't all just spending loads of their parents' money. It could also be that Honey was jealous of Barry being so generous with his money and sprinkled it around when he wasn't so generous to her. According to family acquaintances, there was a dresser in Honey and Barry's home where Barry put pocket money for Honey in a drawer, which he occasionally filled with 50 and $100 bills. Of course, Barry was the one who paid for big expenses like renovations and travel, but Honey couldn't just ask him for a million dollars. Well, she probably could have, but from what I know about Barry, I don't think he would have said yes. As I mentioned earlier, the family's eldest child, Jonathan, has been in the media a lot. Many believe he may have something to do with his parents' deaths. Jonathan worked a lot with his father, even though he didn't work at Apotex too. Barry had apparently been concerned that none of his children would be interested in the pharmaceutical industry and that none of them would want to continue running Apotex when he died or retired. Barry had invested hundreds of millions of dollars in Jonathan's various businesses, many of which revolved around real estate, but the two had not always agreed on what constituted good business. In 2015, two years before Barry and Honey died, Jonathan had sent his father an email, criticizing the way his father spent his money. Jonathan wrote that he didn't like seeing his father give money away to all the different people and organizations, pointing out that he had studied economics, marketing, and business management, and therefore must have been more well-versed in finance matters than his father. In reply, Barry jokingly wrote back to Jonathan that his management of Apotex would probably make Jonathan a billionaire one day, so he didn't need his advice on how to spend his money. Jonathan had also sent an email to one of his sisters saying that he felt their father was no longer able to manage his finances and that they should do something about it. However, the sister did not agree and the issue was tabled. He asked his father for a $250 million loan for a new business idea, a request Barry declined, and after that, he never loaned or lent money to his son again. In 2017, a few weeks before his death, Barry asked Jonathan to pay back about $50 to $60 million of a loan his father had once made because he feared losing a $580 million patent lawsuit to another pharmaceutical company. Jonathan himself now maintains that he was willing to repay the debt, but says it took a long time to get things in place, and Barry died before the money was returned to him. Some of those following the case have speculated whether Jonathan could have hired someone to kill his parents to avoid repaying his loan. But Jonathan himself has said he didn't want them dead and would never kill his parents for such little money. 
Jonathan himself has also said that his father's request for repayment was in no way a threat or even a demand, but a reasonable request. And Barry had said that if the patent trial turned out in his favor, he could return the money to his son. Jonathan is the only one of his siblings who has spoken publicly about the death of his parents and who has given interviews on the subject. He has reported that he has had arguments with his siblings about their parents' deaths, particularly because one of his sister's husbands has openly said that he believes Jonathan had something to do with his parents' murder. Since Barry and Honey's death, their children have also been at odds over their inheritance and how much of Barry's enormous fortune should be donated to charity. I'm not sure if the inheritance has actually been doled out to the kids yet, but here's a bit about what they're dealing with today. Kalen, the youngest of the family, moved to Israel after his parents died. Jonathan and his husband have two children by surrogacy, and together they run a business. Lauren has set up her own yoga and wellness center in Toronto, and Alexandra is apparently involved with Apotex in some way. Over the years, Barry often had to fight other pharmaceutical companies in court over patents. There's nothing strange or unusual about that. It seems to be a fairly common part of the business. By the time of his death, however, he had run into some trouble, owing a total of $1 billion to various pharmaceutical companies and was not interested in repaying his debts. There was some concern about this in Apotex, and many had suggested to Barry that he should retire and leave the finances to someone else, but he refused. Strangely, when Barry died, this debt was quietly settled, almost as if it was just Barry standing in the way of the debt being paid and the business being able to move on. This has led to theories that someone working for Apotex must be involved in the murders, although this does not explain why Honey also had to be killed. has also been some suspicion directed at Barry's enemies and other major pharmaceutical companies, such as AstraZeneca and Pfizer. However, many of those who have looked into the case, including myself, find little credibility in the idea that such large companies would hire assassins to kill the director of another company, especially since patent disputes and resulting debts are, as I said, quite common in the industry, which is why Barry's situation was by no means unusual. There has also been some speculation in the case as to whether the murder was committed by an assassin because there are indications that the murder was committed by a professional. There were no traces left at the scene, nor did the killer have a mobile phone on him, as a search of the telecom records for Barry and Honey's home showed that there was no unknown mobile phone in the house at the time of the murders. A professional killer, then, would know to leave the phone at home. But... The evidence around how Barry and Honey's bodies had been arranged by the pool contradicts this theory. The way they had been left could be taken as a sort of sign or warning to others. If you disobey or cause trouble, this could happen to you too, so to speak. As I described earlier, Honey and Barry's bodies were found seated upright with their right legs crossed over their left legs. On that point, a curious detail about the way the bodies were arranged is that there were two human-sized statues in Honey and Barry's house, 
seated in exactly the same way as their bodies were arranged. The couple's killer must, therefore, have taken the statues as a reference and placed the couple in the same position. Something else that also works against the assassin theory is the manner in which the crimes were committed. Barry and Honey were strangled to death with Barry's own belts. An assassin would probably have brought his own murder weapon, rather than finding a suitable tool in the victim's home. Strangling with a belt is also a bit of an unusual weapon for an assassin. It would seem more obvious to me that such an assassin would instead use, say, a firearm. The police have not yet made public whether they have found a motive for the acts. If the motive was personal, there are certainly many suspects. For over the years, Barry had made many enemies in the industry, and Honey was particularly at odds with the children. But acquaintances have also said that Honey did not always speak out in a politically correct way, which, put bluntly, is to say that Honey was a racist, especially towards Muslims and people from the Middle East. A short time before her death, she also attended a lecture on how to combat the funding of fundamentalist Muslim groups, and like her husband, she did not recognize Palestine. If money was the motive for Barry and Honey Sherman's killings, no one but their children would benefit from the killings because most of the money would go to the children and perhaps to some charity. If one or more of the couple's children were behind the murder of their parents, it would make sense to kill them both because if they just killed Barry, the money would just go to Honey, which they were most likely aware of. In relation to the children, Honey held the money close and wasn't so frivolous with doling it out to her children like Barry was. Therefore, I think it is less likely that she would have distributed the inheritance from Barry to her children. But should both parents die, the money would, and did, go directly to the children. My personal theory is that the motive for the murder of Barry and Honey Sherman was personal, and that the perpetrator is someone who knew the couple and that it was not a random act. It will be interesting to see if any new information comes to light in this case, or if the perpetrator is caught thanks to the CCTV footage. Police investigators still firmly believe that this case will eventually be solved. That's all I had to say this time. I hope you enjoyed listening. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this was Tracing Darkness. This show is originally created by Tilda Loxonen and adapted into English by Podster. Thanks for listening. Next time, we'll be tracing the steps of another interesting case. Interesting case.